HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today I welcome back to the show the wonderful Leah Douglas. Leah is an associate editor and staff writer at FERN, otherwise known as the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Prior to joining the team, Leah worked for three years as a reporter and policy analyst with the Open Markets Institute, researching economic consolidation and monopolization in the food and agriculture industries. Leah founded and wrote Food and Power, a first-of-its-kind resource on food sector consolidation, Her reporting on corporate power and big business in the food and agricultural sectors has been published in The Guardian, The Nation, The Washington Post, Mother Jones, National Public Radio, Time, Fortune, and other outlets. Leah was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting and a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. My God, you make me feel bad about myself, woman. But I'm so grateful. The, that's not the idea, but uh, thank you for I reading know, that very but, long introduction. I know, but I like people to know, like, you know, you are such an accomplished reporter and you've, you have drilled down on the issues that I think are at the heart of what troubles so much uh, industry across the board in our country, that being uh, corporate consolidation and monopolization and I mean, for that reason alone, you're my very favorite reporter. Um, But also you do, and I say this with complete uh, sincerity, you give a great interview, girl. I mean, smart, (laughs) you know, articulate, uh, excellent answers, really, really good. So anyway, let's press on because we have a lot to cover here today uh, in this uh, show. We're going to cover two topics, uh, two recent stories of Leah's that really caught my my attention. The first one uh, we're going to talk about is COVID-19 in the meatpacking industry, which, of course, everybody has heard about how, uh, you know, plants have been closed because so many workers are testing positive. And Leah has done an absolutely Herculean job of tracking uh, how many cases of COVID-19 are erupting in the communities surrounding meatpacking uh, uh, facilities. So, 
Um, you published uh, some really jaw-dropping graphs uh, on the astonishing rise in COVID-19 cases. Um, take us through some of the highlights uh, that you found as you were doing the research on that. Sure. So thanks so much for having me, Katie. And just of to course. sort of situate us for where we're at right now in terms of the scope of this crisis that uh, we're seeing in the meatpacking and food processing sector. So as of today, June 1st, when we're taping, um, they I have tracked over 23,000 cases of COVID-19 among meatpacking workers, food processing workers, and farm workers. And uh, at least 79 workers have died between those three sectors uh, or three types of processing. And that's across over 250 plants uh, in over 35 states, let's say, maybe 40 states. Um, and so what we found during the, we we did an analysis that looked at uh Digging into that data a little bit, we've been tracking the cumulative numbers of cases uh, since the, the middle of April. And what we found was that really there's been a consistent upward trajectory in these case numbers. Uh, this is an issue that is is still getting worse. We're not seeing a leveling off. We're not seeing a decline or a slowing down in the number of cases or outbreaks. And many of the outbreaks are clustered together in different states. And the number of outbreaks is just continuing to go up. And this has been facilitated in part by uh, keeping meatpacking plants open, which is something that there's been a lot of coverage of, that, that President Trump used the Defense Production Act to keep meatpacking meat plants operating. Uh, as, as you said earlier, you know, many were closing temporarily to deal with huge outbreaks among workers. So we're seeing that uh, now essentially all meatpacking plants in the country uh, that were once closed have reopened. I think maybe one is closed as of today. And a few companies, namely Tyson, JBS, and Smithfield, uh, represent a big bulk of the number of outbreaks and the number of cases uh, among workers. So I think as of today, Tyson Foods is leading the pack uh, with over 6,500 cases among its workers across the country. So those are just a few highlights that we, that we saw from that analysis. Um, I, I read in uh, the IATP newsletter, which I subscribe to and which I urge everyone to read along with FERN, um, and that's the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, for those of you not familiar. Um, <clears throat> there was an essay about uh, sort of the whole meat industry thing, and I read that, you know, in conjunction with some other stories about this. But the <clears throat> OSHA, or Occupational Health and Safety Administration, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, this is a quote, uh, issued voluntary guidance to meat and poultry processing plants on how to protect their workers from COVID-19. The guidance helps meat packers because they have no compliance obligations, although employers are expected, though not required, to report cases of COVID-19 among their workers. So what, I mean, this sounds like <clears throat> absolute uh, nonsense to me. It's like they've given these uh, guidances um, but I don't see how that uh, is of any help to these <laughs> unfortunate workers. Um, you know, what, 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 what is this supposed to do? Anything? Is this just, a, a, you know, window dressing for business as usual? Or is there actually some teeth to this in some way? Well, the voluntary guidance definitely received a lot of criticism and, and continues to receive criticism because exactly what you just said, it's voluntary and there's not a necessarily an enforcement mechanism here to ensure that plants are reporting cases and that they are taking steps uh, to protect their workers. And from a reporting standpoint, one of the main struggles of updating this database of cases is the fact that companies themselves are in most cases not releasing their, if they 
they have data, they're not releasing that data on how many of their workers are sick. I will make a note that Tyson Foods uh, recently uh, began releasing uh, numbers from from its testing procedures at a few plants uh, where it's testing the whole workforce and has resulted in um, massive numbers coming out. One plant, there were over 500 cases reported. Um, So Tyson Foods is taking an effort uh, maybe about two weeks in now um, to, to begin reporting that in some cases. And, you know, many employers, meatpacking employers or food processing employers are introducing more protective equipment, attempting to build barriers between between workers, socially distance if possible. Of course, workers across the food system are still reporting that this isn't universally true and that many are not able to access that equipment, not able to access appropriate time off or so appropriate social distancing. And one sort of example, too, that that sort of uh, caught my eye last week was there's an outbreak announced at Long Prairie Packing, which is a beef facility in Minnesota, and they announced an outbreak of many workers, many dozen workers, and they had already taken precautions like taking employees' temperatures, building dividers between workers, uh, even before the outbreak began or, or oh. before the outbreak was detected, I should say. And so that's an indication, too, that, that you know, there, that might not actually be a fail-safe approach. And depending on how rigorous the testing procedures are, there could still be an outbreak going on undetected despite some of these, uh, you know, precautionary measures. Mm. Well, when you think about the fact that this uh, disease is born in water molecules, either expelled from the lungs <clears throat> through, you know, breathing, speaking, singing, etc. cetera. Uh, and the fact that the, um, for people who have never visited as a packing plant or slaughterhouse, there's an enormous amount of steam and water being deployed at all times to, you know, flush down uh, chutes and clean the floors and so forth. So I can see how putting up barriers is really not going to be the magic bullet uh, in between workers, even if you do slow down the chain speed and, you know, make allow for a little bit more distancing between workers who normally speaking are working literally shoulder to shoulder. Um, Okay, so that was an interesting little thing. Now, another thing that the IATP newsletter said, pointed out, is that we have no shortages. Um, We have an 18-month supply of product uh, that is in frozen storage that could be released in the supply chain. And yet, uh, the prices in the meat case, even on pork, have certainly risen exponentially, especially on beef, slightly different business model, but still. And I think everybody remembers that John Tyson published an ad saying we should expect big shortages due to plant closing. And the Smithfield CEO, Kenneth Sullivan, claimed that they wouldn't be able to supply a grocery stores if the plants are closed. So am I wrong in seeing these uh, this response from corporate uh, headquarters as simply um, engaging and misleading the public in the service of somehow uh, profiteering and price gouging? Or is that just me being paranoid and showing my true hippie roots here? (laughs) Well, you know, it's safe to say that the meat industry's interest in throughout this crisis has been keeping the facilities running at a stable and consistent uh, amount of production. You know, the letter that John Tyson published, uh, you know, evoked an action from President Trump, again, the executive order to return the meatpacking industry essentially to the status that it was at before the pandemic. So that's that's the interest is just to continue, keep the line running at the same speed, same amount of output so that sales can continue. You know, 
in particular in the beef instance, the the question of rising consumer prices has been uh, subject to so far uh, some significant investigations, including um, from from government officials into whether there is um, some price manipulation going on in that sector, some price gouging. And it will sort of remain to be seen what's found about that. But that is uh, one one uh, proposed reason why we are seeing some rising prices. Uh, So it is it is an active question. uh, But, you know, we'll have to see what comes out of those investigations. Yeah, I mean, the way the industry works with the supply being backed up on farms as, you know, plants cope with their workers uh, illnesses um, and all the euthanization of pigs, especially and chickens, I think, um, has been, you know, just an abject lesson in, in how wrongheaded this process is really from start to finish when you can't, you know, manage to <laughs> bring your product to market uh, because one or two plants close. I think there's I think it's safe to say there's something very wrong with that model. Um, <clears throat> but I, I thought the idea that the ITP put forth, which was that we have this enormous storehouse of product um, so that they could conceivably, I mean, aside from the distress of all the farmers, they could close down every one of these plants and deep clean them, you know, once a week or something like that. And they're just, you know, as far as I know, nobody's doing that. I certainly haven't heard anything to that to that effect. And, you know, another piece of information that I learned in the course of reporting on this a few months ago was, you know, we export maybe 20 percent of some of our meat commodities. So there's in addition to supplying the domestic market, there's also the export market that these companies will be weighing. And that is a framework that most American consumers who are shopping at the grocery store won't be thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'm you know, it's okay that my prices are higher because we're accommodating exports. You know, that's just part of how the industry works on the back end that can help give some context for uh, some of the decisions that are being made. All right. Excellent point. Yeah. I mean, we export nearly all of the, well, not nearly all, but but uh, given that the Chinese own one in every four pigs in the United States, uh, it's safe to say that a lot of pork, for example, is going back out into Asian markets. Um, and so are the chickens. Anyway, what I wanted to, before we wrap up this particular part of the, of the show, um, what what is the impact of the disease on rural areas um, where these hotspots occur? Like, are hospitals and uh, medical facilities being overwhelmed? Uh, are people outside of the industry also being infected by being exposed to so many or by having so many people in the community get sick? I'm just wondering if there's any, you know, sort of sense of uh, obligation or responsibility on the part of these corporations uh, when an entire town uh, is subject to infection because of the, you know, the hotspot in their particular facility. Well, we actually recently did an analysis at Fern that sought to answer exactly this question. What is the impact of the meatpacking plant outbreaks on the surrounding communities, that, which are predominantly rural? And we, we did this analysis with The Daily Yonder, which is a publication that covers rural America. Right. And we found some pretty striking uh, findings. For instance, uh, we found that in rural counties where meat pack, where there are meatpacking plants with COVID-19 outbreaks, the infection rate of the whole county is five times higher than Ooh. a county that doesn't have such an outbreak. And wow. that uh, is a pretty dramatic finding. We made a, a heat map where we overlaid where we've been able to track uh, meatpacking plants with COVID-19 outbreaks over a heat map that shows where infection rates are the most severe. 
And, yeah. you know, zooming in on that map, you can really see the counties surrounding the meatpacking plant. And sometimes, you know, t- counties even just neighboring that don't have the plant itself but are nearby are significantly higher infection rates than rural areas without those type of facilities. And this is actually these these counties, rural counties with meatpacking plant outbreaks are currently uh, rising to the top of the national lists of uh, counties with the highest infection rates uh, in the whole country. Mm. So we found that of the the 14 rural counties with the highest infection rate, 10 have meatpacking plants with outbreaks. And also of the 10 uh, counties in the country with the highest infection rates of COVID-19, six of them have uh, meatpacking plants with outbreaks. So that's the entire country that 60% of the top counties uh, have meatpacking plants that are experiencing a COVID-19 outbreak. So what that's telling us is even compared to places like New York City, Chicago, Detroit, New Orleans, places that have been heat, been hot spots throughout the pandemic, these rural counties continue to rise to the top of the list because of the presence of these meatpacking plants. And and those <clears throat> communities tend to be uh, conservative and supporters of the GOP, and I suspect have, um, in many cases, I know, like, for instance, some of the... Was it South Dakota that never, never uh, uh, had a uh, stay-at-home order? I mean, a lot of them have uh, failed to kind of address the pandemic in any meaningful way, um, you know, up until now. Is that? Do you think that's changing? Do you think the attitudes in those communities, uh, vis-a-vis social distancing, stay-at-home orders, uh, wearing masks in public, and so forth, do you feel like that is beginning to change as a result? Well, you know, it's hard to generalize, but but certainly the yeah. the state leadership of many of those states that are most hard hit have been criticized for their handling of of the whole COVID-19 pandemic and specifically the meatpacking plant situation. You know, the state of Nebraska, Governor Pete Ricketts, uh, maybe two weeks ago now, said that the state would no longer be releasing information about outbreaks at meatpacking plants. And <laughs> in Iowa, um, Governor Kim Reynolds, I think this was last week, said that the state would only reveal information about outbreaks if reporters explicitly asked about them in press conferences. So that those those moves have been, I would say, rightly by the press uh, condemned for being fairly non-straightforward and explicitly evasive uh, in the case of Nebraska for not making clear uh, where this where these outbreaks are happening. So uh, there are instances where, you know, we're seeing that those those conservative leaders uh, are not taking the steps uh, required to really inform the public about the severity of the outbreaks at these plants. Astonishing. Well, we're going to take a quick break uh, and come back and talk about uh, a new executive order uh, signed by the president recently uh, regarding aquaculture, which I think should make everybody's hair burst into flame. Uh, So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Leah Douglas from Food and Environment Reporting Network. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. 
Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. So, moving on to seafood, the other protein. (laughs) (laughs) So they have now signed or, you know, it has now signed an executive order proposing to allow fin fish aquaculture in open waters. Why Why would that be necessary when we export so much seafood already? So that's a great question. And so essentially what happened in the beginning of May was that President Trump signed an executive order that essentially settled a number of debates that had been ongoing in the fishing and seafood ocean world around whether and how the U.S. should permit um, offshore aquaculture Uh, in federal waters. And essentially what that's describing is penned floating um, aquaculture facilities in the ocean that would raise fin fish, so fish like tilapia or bass, um, things like that for domestic consumption. And this is something that other countries um, have done, particularly China has done extensive um, ocean aquaculture production. Uh, But it's been pretty curtailed here in the U.S. Actually, we've had almost no, um, almost none of that type of aquaculture because there are environmental concerns about uh, raising fish in this manner. And we can get into that a little bit more detail. But essentially, this executive order lays out um, a pathway for those type of facilities to be permitted. And it places authority with the national, with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, to to sort of oversee those permits, uh, which was sort of contested. Various agencies and various federal bodies, including Congress, had argued that they should oversee uh, this this open question about aquaculture. So the executive order uh, places the authority with NOAA and uh, sets a few other um, standards around how this process could move forward. Mm. And um, just for people who maybe don't really realize this, what what are let's talk about the environmental impacts because I know that Chile, for example, you know, famous for farming salmon and and sea bass, uh, they had terrible uh, environmental fallout from uh, penned uh, fish farms. So talk a little bit about what that can mean to the oceans, which are obviously already struggling uh, under all all sorts of uh, constraints like climate change, etc., so the main concern that, um, that 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 advocates who are concerned about this about aqua, about open o- ocean aquaculture, excuse me, have said is that essentially you know the open pen system uh, introduces all of the waste associated with those fish into the ocean and potentially whatever diseases uh, they might be cultivating uh, into an environment that that uh, ha- has not been touched by those type of contaminants before. So there's a concern there that those facilities, those aquaculture facilities, would uh, endanger not only just the ecosystems that they're in but also potentially the livelihood of independent fishermen who depend on those wild species to support their own businesses. So if those wild um, stocks of seafood become contaminated or exposed to disease from a farming operation, then it could have a downstream impact on the independent fishers themselves, as well as those independent fishers facing potential enhanced competition from um, the types of companies that would have enough resources to start a massive aquaculture operation. And this way, it sort of mirrors the issues that we see with CAFOs, Uh confined animal feeding operations in 
you know, to quote terrestrial farming, which is um, what what some uh, seafood folks call, you know, livestock agriculture, right? So you have yeah. a penned operation where there's a huge amount of waste being generated. Um, sometimes disease, you know, is is easily spread there. And the economies of scale from those facilities make it very difficult for smaller producers to compete. So essentially, this is the ocean analog to to that same uh-huh. issue. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you um in, in your article it says the fishing industry supports this. Um but it clearly will spell ruin for independent fishermen as you just pointed out. Why would the who who in the fishing industry is supporting this? Like who are these guys? These big corporations that want to, you know, that have the resources and facilities to set something up like this. Who's lobbying for this? Sure. So in the seafood industry, again, we can draw an analog to the the meat and livestock industry. You know, there are industry groups that represent uh, disproportionately the largest players in the sector. And then there are other organizations or just independent voices who represent smaller uh, smaller producers, more independent producers. And so we see a similar pattern in the seafood industry. And so the supporters of this move towards ocean aquaculture have included industry coalitions that uh, want to be involved financially in these operations and want to see the expansion of ocean aquaculture in the U.S. And again, to reiterate, this is a longstanding debate and longstanding issue um, was not introduced with the executive order. So these are groups that have argued with one another for years yeah. about the path forward on on ocean aquaculture. And so we're seeing, you know, the, the seafood industry groups are excited about this. And they say that, you know, the reason to to develop these operations is food security to enhance our domestic production of seafood, which we do import a significant amount of our seafood today. We do. I we 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 export uh, something like ninety uh, percent and import about eighty percent. Now, as you point out, some of that <clears throat> imported seafood is is fish caught in the U.S. waters and then processed overseas, uh, and so then and then re-imported to this country. But you know what? what <laughs> why are we selling off all of our wild-caught seafood to other countries and importing their farmed? Largely, their farmed products like tilapia, farm-raised salmon, and certainly shrimp and, you know, yeah, certainly shrimp, which I personally won't touch with a 10-foot pole. And we... It's a great question, and that is one of the big sort of brain puzzles of our mm. seafood industry, especially for folks approaching this issue for the first time. Like you said, you know, it's notoriously difficult to really understand how much of our domestic seafood we consume here in the U.S. Because, uh, as you said, the, the the import figures lump in fish that we're exporting to be processed more cheaply overseas and then re-importing. And so they, we might re-import it as a processed uh, product. It might not be a right. fresh fish fillet. Um, but we are consuming domestic product through those uh, imports. But it's very difficult to parse out. Uh, there's been a few estimates, but it's hard to say for sure. And my understanding is, you know, some of our domestic domestic caught uh, fish gets sold at a higher price overseas. And so over the years, the export market has become more profitable than the domestic market. And of course, uh-huh. there are many voices uh, within the U.S. advocating that we should uh, we should shake up the system and we should be redirecting more of our domestic caught fish for consumption uh, domestically. So I imagine that if this aquaculture conversation continues, uh, we'll see some more of those arguments playing out. Yes, I would imagine so. I mean, you know, once again, it's like it's 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 a drive to the bottom 
for wages, essentially, isn't it? Because if it's cheaper to process it in China, then who cares what the costs are uh, in terms of shipping it back and forth? I mean, surely that accounts for something. Um, but it is really interesting to me that uh, that we have developed that model and stick with it. And, uh, you know, and now people are surprised that they're processing our chickens in China and sending them back. Well, it's the same thing, right? You know, absolutely. The the cost efficiency is the big argument in favor of those types of uh, of sort of seemingly bizarre uh, decisions, like to take domestic uh, food product and ship it overseas and then reimport it. But you know, if you think uh, not to say that this is any more logical, but we we do something similar even within the United States around, uh, say, you know, meat processing or vegetable processing, where you know a vegetable might be grown in California, trucked across the country to a processing facility, and you know, trucked back to be sold as some sort of processed, you know, finished product. So it's not unique to this sector. This is a a common um, an issue. It's certainly an issue that uh, climate advocates have pointed to as, you know, the climate implications for all that shipping are, are, extremely large. So, so again, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, I'd hope that uh, we get a little more clarity on, on this system if we do end up moving forward in the aquaculture direction. Yeah, I thought, I find that a very scary uh, thought, the idea. I mean, not, as I say, or as you said, uh, you know, many other countries have participated in this, and I think they've seen uh, their share of, of disasters as a result. Um, What's amazing to me is that those disasters, whether it's our you know, the CAFO disaster being exported around the world or, you know, now the, say, the Chileans' experience with fish farming, you know, and, and how the that impact on their oceans has been, you know, nobody seems to learn from any of these mistakes. That is the thing that I find so astonishing as an observer of, uh, you know, agriculture um, in any sector. It just blows my mind. Um what you know, Noah? You mentioned that Noah has been given the oversight of the domestic finfish agri- aquaculture program. Why, why have they become the arbiter? And why is that not? I mean, it seems weird that there wouldn't be other organizations or other agencies involved in that. But why would they not be a good oversight uh, partner for this particular venture? I, I was a little confused by that. I think of Noah as a fairly benign agency. So, <laughs> um, sure, it, and there are certain certainly there are many advocates for placing the authority with NOAA. What I found interesting about the executive order was, you know, even as recently as I think the last time I wrote an in depth piece about aquaculture was uh, maybe the fall of 2019, and and in that time, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency was uh, was reviewing the environmental impact of a potential aquaculture pilot project in federal waters, and so that whole process was being overseen by. The EPA. Around the same time, there were also congressional proposals being put forward, uh, arguing that the impacts of ocean aquaculture could be so severe for the environment that uh, actually Congress should oversee the permitting because the people, uh, you know, as represented through Congress, should have say over whether or not we move forward with these facilities. So uh, to me, the most striking thing was placing this authority uh, decisively with one agency when the last I checked in and, and when I spoke to advocates for this story, this was also there, you know, the status quo had been that it was sort of up in the air. And so the planting the flag at NOAA, um, 
um, was a was sort of a, a striking departure from where things had been at even just a couple of months before. Um, it, it is worth saying that, you know, within the executive order, um, there's a lot within this executive order. It's very extensive. And one piece engages um, the country's regional fishing authorities, which are there's eight regional fishing authorities, which do things like they set fishing seasons and quotas. They sort of do fish stock management, things like that. And in sort of a geographically specific way. And this order calls upon them to generate a list of uh, essentially regulations that are that are uh, hindering, I guess would be the language of the executive order, um, the domestic fishing industry. So essentially, it's sort of uh, requesting a write-up of potential areas to deregulate the fishing sector. And, you know, some regional fishing authorities are very inclined towards deregulation. Others are not. There's a lot of politics there. Uh, but so that's another way, that's another body that will be engaged in this conversation uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's just another, I, I don't know why it's, it's so it seems so inevitable to me, but the, it's just another uh, way to, to drive out the small guy. It's, it's more of the Earl Butts, uh, you know, philosophy of get big or get out, isn't it? It's really, it really is about that. Um, and the, and the independent guys like, you know, where I live in, in rural Rhode Island, uh, we have a big fishing fleet uh, coming out of Point Judith, and I see those guys going away when something like this starts up. I don't see how they can compete with that. So, but the whole story, you know, whether it's about the meatpacking or the fishing industry, it's all, you know, it's all pointing so strongly towards re-regionalizing our food systems. And uh, just before I let you go, Leah, I wondered if you have a sense of whether that concept is going to get any traction post pandemic or will we just you know barrel along as we have been um you know load these many years really what do you think will happen it's a great question and and definitely the million dollar question um facing the agriculture sector right now we've seen you know this pandemic has exposed so many weaknesses within the food system so many vulnerable workers being exploited and there has been you know there have been some um, indications of you know renewed uh you know sales direct to farmer direct from farmer to consumer sales, you know, many farmers I speak to who sell regionally are, you know, selling out, they're, they're experiencing, you know, huge demand, especially those that have been able to pivot to selling online, um, doing, you know, no contact uh, distribution, things like that. So there has been a huge opportunity there. Uh, at the same time, you know, so many farmers and so many shoppers, you know, don't, don't live or operate in a way that is conducive to that type of uh, yeah. setup and would really take um, some, some bigger systems in place to channel that food uh, to, you know, to people who can who can buy it in places that aren't um, that aren't in within a regional food shed that's that's equipped for that. So, right. You know, there's a lot of opportunity. It just it just depends on uh, what type of action is taken. Well, I guess we'll know more after November 3rd, because <laughs> I, I think, you know, if all goes well, we'll we'll set a, a slightly different course, I hope. But, um, you know. Anyway, in the meantime, I just want to say thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, tell people where they can read your stories. And you have a website with all of your stories, you know, um, aggregated? Yep. So you can find all of my reporting at thefern.org and uh, also at my personal website, Leah J. Douglas. And uh, everyone's welcome to follow both Fern, uh, Fern News on Twitter, and I'm Leah J. Douglas on Twitter as well. 
Thank you so much, Leo. It's always a joy talking with you, and I appreciate you shedding your clarity on these, you know, very complex topics. I mean, I'm I'm always thinking, like, do I really understand this? But you helped me. So thanks a lot for that. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And uh, thanks to my wonderful engineer, Matt. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for tuning in. And this, uh, this is goodbye for now, folks. Have a good week. Stay safe. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 